Okay, if you have your Bibles with you this morning, if you could open them up to Luke chapter 2, and let me, uh, let me have your attention just briefly, this is sort of um, not part of the sermon, but it'll lead into it. You don't need to raise your hand, but how many of you have been asked this week or thought this week, how could God let what happened in Connecticut happen? And we need to be able to, as the child, children of God, the people of God, be able to answer those questions. And sometimes that answer is nothing but prayer. And just silence to let people hurt. Because I know people who were driving, when they heard the news, had a pullover, they were in tears. When people are ready, you've got to lead them to the gospel. And the best way to lead them to the gospel is to show them this. There has never been a more senseless, heinous, tragic death than that of the Son of God. And as horrible, and I'm going to say this very carefully, as horrible and horrific and heart-rending, because we thought, Denise and I, of our youngest who's still in elementary school, we thought through our own experiences horrible as that was and it is unimaginable it is evil incarnate nothing is as evil as killing god and there is great comfort if god the father allowed that to happen though it crushed him when he allows these things to happen it is not because he is evil it is not because he doesn't care he has a perfect plan and it's hard for us to say that. You don't say that until people are ready. But it is hard to think that. But when they're ready, you must get them to the gospel. And you must remind them of God's love and His grace. And give them that hope. Amen? So this is the time we come together, Christians. And we chew on these difficult things. And we talk about them. And they don't make sense. And you likely never will make it make sense. But emerging as a thread through all that is God is still good. God is still on the throne. God still has a perfect will. And he will bring that forth. And one day, one day, there will be no more tears and there will be no more senseless violence. That's the power of the death of Jesus Christ. And it began with his birth. And so we want to talk this morning. I want to try to, if I can somehow do that, bridge that heavy conversation to... The joy of the Christmas season. I don't know if you're like me, but right now my life is a blur. It is so busy. I have a really good friend telling me, you got to slow down. you got to slow down. And I know I need to slow down. And I think hopefully this sermon for me began to distill in me a focusing on Christmas. How many of you would say right now you're, you're so busy that you've really not begun to truly focus on Christmas this month? How many of you? I think there's a lot. Yep, there's a lot of us. So this is my attempt to slow us down and show us what the world is trying to do. So here's our, our jump from G Nehemiah to Luke chapter 2, right? Remember the three enemies of Nehemiah and the people of God? You've got Satan represented by Sanballat. You've got Geshem the Arab who represents the world that we live in. And you've got Tobiah that represents our flesh. This is all about Geshem this morning. And this is all about how the world wants to distract 
our attention, wants to divert our attention away, even through senseless acts of violence, distract us away from celebrating and having joy in the birth of God and Jesus Christ. How do you regain your focus? That's mainly the purpose this morning. How many of you know what's famous about December 17th, 1903? Anybody? All right, so they, they had their first, it was on their fifth attempt, their first flight, historic 12-second flight in an airplane, Kitty Hawk, North Carolina. But you may, you may know that. You might not know the rest of the story. I'm going to tell you a little bit more. They hurriedly found a telegraph and sent this telegram to their sister, Catherine. We have flown for 12 seconds. We will be home for Christmas. Catherine receives this telegram. And she rushes to their, her local newspaper and talks to the editor and tells him all about the new flying machine of her brothers and that they're going to be home for Christmas. And if he'd like to set up an interview, he says, well, let me put something in the paper. And so December 19th, the headline on the sixth page of her paper, her town's paper, here's what it read. Wright Brothers, home for Christmas. He missed it. Nobody cares about the Wright brothers being home for Christmas. This is a, an historic moment that a plane flew for 12 seconds. Launching aviation. And the editor missed it. You know, I wonder how many times we are missing, truly missing, Christians, us included, the message of Christmas. It, and it's the message of the gospel. It's the good news that God became flesh to live among Humanity perfectly to offer his life as a sacrifice for our sins. And it made a way for people to be in fellowship with God for all of eternity. This is the message. God came to earth to be born as a baby. Can you imagine that? I mean, come on. Moms who have had little ones. Of course, that would be every mom, now that I think of it. Listen, it's not my fault you don't hire smart pastors, at least smart lead pastors. The other ones are pretty good. Listen, when you've had a baby, have you not ever hold, held that baby and wondered that God would be born as a baby? And yet our world is so clever. Now, I know I'm speaking to you. See, might as well give me your attention. Our world is so clever at distracting us away from this celebration. So as we begin this morning, Luke chapter 2, we're going to notice how for all of human history since Christ was born, literally on the night that he was born, people have tended to miss the main point. In those days, Luke 2 verse 1, in those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem. So there's this worldwide registration. It's a census. And by the way, listen, they happened every 14 years in the Roman Empire. And they were conducted for two reasons. And you're going to get them because one of them is going to strike personally home to you. It was always conducted for taxation. 
and for the military. You see, the Jews were ex exempt from military service in Rome. So Joseph, he wasn't going to Bethlehem for military census taking so that he could be automatically conscripted into the Roman army. That's not why he was going. He's exempt. He's going because everybody in the Roman Empire had to pay taxes. And so they conduct this Rome-wide, worldwide registration so that they could fulfill the phrase, no taxation without registration. That's how it looked in the Roman Empire. And so the order goes out from Caesar Augustus. He's the most powerful man in the world at the time. At the time. Let, me, let me talk to you about Caesar Augustus. That's not his birth name. His birth name is Octavian. Caesar and Augustus are two titles. You've got Caesar, which means emperor, and you've got Augustus, which means holy. And now you kind of know how he got this title. He was the first one, the first ruler of Rome that was considered to have become a god. In fact, the Roman Senate gave him the title, the savior of the whole world. This is Caesar Augustus. And this is who is famous for defeating Antony and Cleopatra. He, he consolidated the, the whole Roman Empire. But let's, let's not miss the irony here. He's born a baby boy and he's given a divine status and a holy name for God. And then at the same time as this decree goes out, we've got Jesus who is God and is born a baby boy on a mission with a very common, ordinary name. You know the word, the name Jesus was so common in his day. Almost like John is today. And so Luke 2 opens with this decree from the most powerful human being on earth. He's issuing a registration decree and hundreds of miles south in a despised corner of the world. The angels are issuing a birth announcement for the true savior of the world. You can't possibly get a greater, more ironic contrast. And what Luke does is he takes the biblical camera and he starts with Caesar Augustus and then he pans it south and we begin to follow this bewildered young man named Joseph who takes his pregnant fiance. They're not yet married, but betrothal in the Jewish custom was almost as bound as marriage. You still had to get a certificate of divorce to break it. He takes his pregnant fiance and he goes to his hometown to register. Now listen, you didn't miss the wonder of our sovereign God, right? I mean, listen, we, we question God's sovereignty in times like this last week. Here's the sovereign God who orchestrated through the most powerful human being on the planet, this Rome-wide census, in order to move Joseph and Mary to Bethlehem to fulfill Old Testament prophecy. That's pretty sovereign. He is the king of kings. And while all the world was responding to this massive census, the king of kings was about to come into our world to save us. But listen, almost everyone was going to miss it. And missing the message of Christ's birth has been occurring throughout the last 2,000 years. Let me give you a whirlwind tour. Are you ready? See, in the 4th century, the Bishop of Jerusalem sent a letter to the Bishop of Rome. 
and asked him to determine the exact date of Christ's birth. The Bishop of Rome didn't know. So he got together with his counselors and they fired back a letter to the Bishop of Jerusalem and they fixed the date on December 25th. Not only is there no evidence that Jesus was born that day, listen, there's a lot of evidence that he wasn't. Most place it likely in March or April. But the Bishop of Rome had his reasons for determining the date of December 25th. You see, December in Rome was the major month of pagan celebrations. They celebrated with festivals. They had feasts with all kinds of immoral activities. And it all culminated in Rome in what was called the Festival of Saturnalia. You see, the Festival of Saturnalia was all about worshiping the god Saturn, who was the agricultural god. And the Romans believed this, that Saturn died every year. Thus came winter when the fields were dormant. And that if you wanted him to come back to life in the spring, then you needed to celebrate and you needed to worship and you needed to pour out offerings to him in the winter. And so they created this festival of Saturnalia in order to do that. And they gathered together for feasting. They adorned their homes with evergreens. Is this sounding familiar? They hung trinkets on trees. They lit candles. They hung mistletoe. They exchanged gifts with one another. In fact, the most common gift was a little idol in the image of one of the variety of the Roman deities, always made out of clay, marble, or silver. See, the Bishop of Rome wanted to take this pagan celebration, this pagan pagan festival, and convert it. He wanted to redeem it. By the way, it spectacularly failed, and it almost always fails when the church tries to take something of the world and make it pleasing to God. God's not interested in that. And what resulted is this marriage of pagan and Christian customs, what we call modern-day Christmas. I know some of you are getting depressed. I'm popping your bubbles. And this began to spread north. It began to go into now what is called northern Europe. You've got Norway and Finland and Sweden. And they began to hold a great celebration during December known as Yule or Christmas time. And in fact, during the Yule season, they honored their gods Odin and Thor with a festival of drinking and music. And by the way, up in Minnesota, where there's a great, great population of the Scandinavian people, they still celebrate with Yule time. And as you head east from Rome into Persia in December, they worshiped Mithra, the god of light. And if you go west into Rome, it began to spread. All this began to spread into England where the Druids would hold their December celebration. And in that celebration, the people would march out on Christmas time or during that festival to the oak groves. And the priests would climb up into the trees and cut down the mistletoe. While they chanted away and then they would sacrifice two white oxen. They would take the mistletoe and they would hang them in their homes. And anytime anyone came underneath the mistletoe, he or she was to be immediately embraced and relationships reconciled whether they wanted to or not. 
And then later in history, the manger scene began to develop and it was popularized by St. Francis in the 13th century. And then you get to the 16th century and they began decorating Christmas trees. In fact, Martin Luther popularized this during the Reformation, except then it was called the Paradise Tree. And it was used in Germany to celebrate the 24th of December. It was a holiday called the Feast of Adam and Eve. Then Holland gave the world St. Nicholas, who was a white-bearded bishop of Asia Minor. He was so popular, St. Nicholas, that when he died, after he died, people believed that he returned every December 8th and to ride through the streets on a white horse where he would put little gifts in the wooden shoes of all the Dutch children who had been good while the bad children received a switch. And the Dutch called St. Nicholas, St. Nicholas Sinterklaas, that's what they called St. Nicholas Sinterklaas, which when Americanized became Santa Claus and then stuffing stockings began to develop. By the way, this is interesting. How many of you stuff your stockings and hang them? We do in the Ackley family. That actually began, they say, with a legend of a kind nobleman whose wife died of an illness, leaving him with three daughters. And he made a series of bad investments and lost all of his money. And they had to move into a peasant's cottage where the daughters did their own cooking, sewing, and cleaning. And the father became increasingly depressed. He had no dowry to give to his girls. They could not get married. And the three daughters washed their their clothing and they hung their stockings over the fireplace to dry one night when St. Nicholas, knowing the despair of the father, he took three small bags of gold and he threw them one by one down the chimney to land in the stockings. That's the legend of the stocking stuffing um, practice. And then children all over the world continued this tradition of hanging stockings. If you go to France... They place their shoes by the fireplace. If you go to Holland, they fill their shoes with hay. And they put a carrot in there for the horse of Sinterklaas. If you go to Hungary, children shine their shoes before putting them near the door or the windowsill. Italy, children leave their shoes out the night of January 4th. Or if you go to Puerto Rico, they place flowers in small boxes under their beds for the camels of the three kings. Well, where did carols develop? Christmas caroling. Well, originally it meant to dance to something. St. Francis of Assisi popularized Christmas caroling in 1223 when he started nativity plays in Italy. And then Christmas cards, which we all get and we give, they started in London, 1946, by Sir Henry Cole. He saw a way he can make a lot of money. The one you see behind me was the world's first commercialized Christmas card. And all of the early Christmas cards depicted paintings of drinking scenes. Listen, since the birth of Christ, scores of people have missed the message of God coming in the flesh. The world is great at diverting our attention and distracting us. And that's exactly what happened even on the very night of his birth. Back to Luke chapter 2. Joseph was of the house and lineage of David to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. So you've got this command from Caesar Augustus. And it sent Joseph and Mary traveling, listen, 80 
miles from Nazareth to Bethlehem. 80 miles to a little town called Bethlehem, five to six miles southwest of Jerusalem. Listen, you go up to Bethlehem because Bethlehem is 2,400 feet above the sea level. If you've been to Bethlehem, you were struck undoubtedly with its beauty and its hills. It's got a perfect climate. In the winter, it's in the high 50s as a median temperature. In the summer, the mid to low 70s. And the name means house of bread, which is perfectly fitting for the birthplace of the bread of heaven. You know, I said that last night and Pastor Jason came up to me afterwards and says, you know, I never thought of it before, but Mary had a bun in the oven. Listen, I said Pastor Jason, so if that's heretical, he gets the blame, okay? I probably won't ever say that again because you obviously didn't think it was very funny. Her delivery was imminent. And when they arrived in Bethlehem, she gave birth to her firstborn. Look at verse 7. She gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger. So she wraps Jesus in swaddling cloths, laying him in a manger. And by the way, there's a lot of interesting customs that the Jews had when, they, when the, their women gave birth. And I'll mention a couple of them in a minute. Let me give you another worldwide tour. Are you ready? In the Netherlands... When a mother has a baby, the attending nurse for the new mother makes what's famous there a delicacy, biscuits with mice, biscuits that are topped with sprinkles, blue and white for a baby boy and pink and white for baby girls. But if you move to Japan, when a woman has a baby, the new mother stays at her parents' home for a month or longer, stays in bed for 21 days while friends visit to celebrate and eat with her red rice and red beans. If you move to Turkey, mother and baby, they stay home for the first 20 days. Listen, ladies, you're going to like some of these. And after the birth, while friends visit to celebrate by drinking special beverages, and then after she's well enough with the baby, they go back and visit those same friends where their friends give her a handkerchief with an egg in it. And then they take flour and they rub it on the hairline of the baby, believing that it's going to grant that baby a long life. If you go to Indonesia, mothers are given 90-minute massages every day after giving birth for a month. By the way, Philadelphia has flights to Indonesia starting. In the Viet- Leah, that was for you. In the, in the Vietnamese custom, the mother-in-law moves in for a month. <laughs> and there are a lot of flights leaving Vietnam. For many Hindu... Now, this gets worse. And I'm telling you, some of you are going to think I'm lying. I'm telling you, you can verify this on the internet. For many Hindu mothers, they do not wash until the fifth day after birth when she's given a bath in sacred cow urine and milk and allowed to rest in a room prepared with fresh cow dung. Why? Because Hindu adherents believe that there are 330 million gods and goddesses that reside in every cow and anything that comes out of the cow is sacred as well. Well, the first century Jews, they had customs as well. Look what she says again, or the Bible says again. She gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths. Well, Luke doesn't mention that the baby was 
cleaned first, but this, this is how Jewish mothers cleaned their babies, or more accurately, midwives. They would take salt and they would rub the creases of the baby to get all the defilement out of the baby. And then they would believe that it hardened the skin. So they would rub the baby with salt. And then the baby would be swaddled to keep the baby warm, protect the inner, internal organs, and keep the limbs straight for proper growth. And the way that they swaddled were in a couple of ways. One, it was a large square tunic and there was or a um, piece of cloth and in the corner was a swaddle strip of cloth diagonally. And so they would wrap the baby in that square piece of cloth and then wrap the baby with the swath. But that's not as common as this one. What they would take are several strips of cloth, five to six yards long, four to five inches wide, and they would wrap around every limb of the baby and then wrap the baby tightly to give that baby the security that, they, that it needed. Now, I want to talk about that for a second. Luke doesn't mention the salt, but he mentions the swaddling cloths. And I want to see, I want you to, I want you to think, why did Luke mention this? I mean, so it's a little interesting historically to know that. But why would he include it in the birth narrative? And I want you to get the metaphor of the swaddling cloths because I think it's significant. You've got Mary, whom it infers did the swaddling. But you've got God the Father who wrapped his little son, that baby, in flesh. You've got Mary that wraps him in cloth. You've got God that wraps him in flesh. Now listen, I want you to think through that for a second. Haven't you ever wondered, did Jesus ever get a splinter? Did Jesus ever get stung by a bee? I mean, you don't really think, do you, that he walked around with this nimbus of a glow around him, exempt from every difficulty on the planet. He hungered. He grew tired. His flesh was as susceptible as our flesh. God the Father wraps His Son in flesh. Mary metaphors it through wrapping Him in the swaddling cloths. And I find that to be an unbelievable thought. One that we miss too often. And she wraps him in these cloths, and then the text tells us that the Savior of the world, look what it says, was laid in a manger. Friends, the word manger is not a bassinet, it's not a crib, it's a feeding trough for animals. It's where they put water, and it's where they put food in for cattle and sheep. And he was placed there, look what it says, because there was no place for them in the inn. Now what comes to your mind? What conjures mentally to the word inn? Are you thinking the comfort inn on first century scale? An inn was commonly a square building that had an inner courtyard. And on the first floor, all the rooms opened inward. On the first floor were the stables for the livestock and the storage rooms for the cargo. When you stayed there, they unloaded your cargo so it could not be stolen. And then in the morning, you reloaded your wagon with the cargo. And then crude staircases that went up to the second floor and the lodging rooms were on the second floor, all facing inward to the courtyard. 
Sometimes inns were only one level, and in that case, it was still in a square, still had an inner courtyard, except the lodging rooms went in, and the, around the outside of the, court, of the building were the stable rooms. But this word for inn is typically not that word for inn. This word means almost always a single lodging place. And so what we believe is here is a single lodging place that is filled up. And when places had lodging places, they found stables somewhere else. And if you go to Bethlehem today, you're going to see a cave system in Bethlehem in the limestone. In fact, they built a church called the Church of the Nativity where they believed Jesus was born in a cave in Bethlehem. There was no place for them in the inn, likely meaning that he had to go to the cave where Mary gave birth. And usually, listen, when you, when you think of why was there no place in the inn, doesn't it usually come to your mind, well, there's this worldwide census and all the Jews are coming to Bethlehem and they used all of the places. That's likely not why there was no place. The better reason is this, that every town's census was conducted by a group of Roman officials. And strict Jews would never enter a home where there was a Gentile. That's why when they brought Jesus right before crucifixion to Pilate, they would not go into Pilate's home. They made Pilate come out to him because they would not be rendered unclean because they were going to celebrate the Passover going into the temple later that day. They would not enter a home where there was a Roman Gentile or any Gentile. And so with all of these Roman officials taking up all of these lodging places and no Jew going into there, they were forced to go elsewhere to find lodging. And what they found was a place where there was a feeding trough, commonly carved into the walls of cave systems. But I want to reflect not on that interesting little bit of history. I want to reflect on that statement, there was no place for them in the end. Now listen, if you haven't connected into this message yet, here's where you connect. There's no place for them. There's no room for them. Why? Because it's filled up. There's no place where they could stay. Listen, a place that is filled squeezes out opportunity. Can you, can you remember that? If a place is filled, it displaces, it squeezes out opportunity. If you fill a jar with water, it will push out the oxygen. Now take that principle, the Ephesians 3.17, you can see it behind me. Paul prayed that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that Christ might find lodging. Christ might find a place in your hearts through faith. See, God desires to lodge in our hearts, friends. Intimately close. The, the very center of a human being to a Jew was their heart. Not the blood pumping organ. The very essence of who we are as human beings. That's where God wants to dwell. And He wants to do His work of transformation. His work of redemption. Changing our desires because a changed desire results in changed thinking and changed behavior. God wants to lodge in our hearts. But for many, let's look inward. Let's be honest. Let's look into ourselves for a moment. The world has filled the rooms. Take your heart for a moment. 
the place where God wants to dwell. And then remember what all I've taught you this morning about how the world likes to distract us from the message of the birth of Christ. And remember that the world wants to fill that room up and displace God. It can't get Him out of your life, Christian brother and sister, but it can push God to the periphery. And God wants the center. You know, I have a buying principle. If I cannot somehow find somewhere in my home to fit it and to place it, I'm not buying it. You can't fit the camper in. That's a 30-foot camper. I tried. I won't get in the garage. But for a lot of us, listen, and maybe this is some of us here, our garages are so full we can't park in it. I will not buy something if I cannot park in my garage. And our sheds no longer handle everything we've got, so we build bigger sheds. And if the bigger sheds don't work, then we put a staircase in the attic and we start filling the attic. The world is great at filling our homes with stuff, and it could do the same exact thing with our hearts. You know what it means. You know what it looks like. Anything that the world throws in your heart, it's got a fast expiration date. The satisfaction you get from the things of this world that expires quickly. You know that new wardrobe that you could not wait to, to buy? You put it on in the dressing room and it looked great. And you couldn't wait to, to wear it. It doesn't take long before you need another wardrobe. And that new piece of technology that you've been hungering after, that I've been hungering after, the, the very minute you buy it, it's almost outdated. The new version's coming. The thrill that you had when you're pursuing pleasure, it rots. It dissipates shortly after acquiring them. Listen, whatever the world shoots up our veins, it brings us back down almost instantly. The world knows how to fill up our hearts. It knows how to make the end of our hearts no lodging for Jesus. And we miss him. You know, I can tell you some indications if you've got the no vacancy sign flashing in your heart to Jesus. Ready? Here's some indications. See if this is you. Do you find yourself maddeningly over busy with no success and ever slowing down your life? See, God's weaving in rhythms of rest so that we reflect and realize that we are dependent on him. We don't have an infinite uh, inexhaustible supply of strength in ourselves. We need to get it from God. So that sabbatical rest are to remember that. Do you find yourself deeply saddened during the Advent season? Listen, there's a reason that depression spikes around Christmas. Worldwide. Is there this constant thrumming and humming of restlessness and dissatisfaction in your life? Is there that nagging voice that gets drowned out? You know, when I come to church, all of a sudden I can't, I just want to walk with God. And then by Tuesday, it sort of dissipates until the next Sunday at church. That's the flashing no vacancy sign. That's the world that's filling your heart and it's displacing Jesus to the outer periphery. Do you have this nagging sense of guilt knowing that you're not walking closely with the very God that saved you for eternity? 
Are you wondering if this life is as good as it gets and then you're scared of the answer? Listen, all of these are indications that the no vacancy sign is flashing and God cannot find a place in your heart, not at the center. So allow me in these closing thoughts to redirect our hearts to Jesus. Here it is. You ready? This is so phenomenal to me and it may not strike you the way it did me, but this really moved me this week. Jesus was born in a stable where animals were kept. Now listen, I dated a farmer in high school. You know, I think in today's age, I have to qualify that a little bit. I, I dated a female farmer in high school. I just, I, some of you gave me this look. And no matter what their family could try to do, they could not get the smell of the farm out of their home. I want you to think of Jesus being born in a stable. And now listen, there, there's so many people in Bethlehem that there's no lodging place. So the stables are full. The cattle are, are lowing. There is the stench of animals everywhere around. But that's the only place they could find. They lay this little baby in this feeding trough. By the way, it's Justin Martyr who in the second century said that that stable was a cave. But here's what struck me this week. The God of the universe, he knew, he knew that there would be no place for his son in that inn. Yet he sent Mary and Joseph to that little town anyways. That, my friends, is grace. And you can see it behind me. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, he was God. He was the son of God. He is the Son of God. Yet for your sake he became poor, born in a feeding trough, in a cave likely, because there's no room. So that you by his poverty might become rich, full of blessings. Ephesians says, Christian brother and sister, we have the very same blessings that Jesus Christ has. The, the firstborn Jesus, we've got the same blessings. This is grace. See, if the world is filling your heart and you've pushed Jesus to the side, you're going to be like this lady that came into my office this past week. And this is what got my mind percolating in this direction. She's been a Christian for 30-something years. Has hardened her heart to God. Full of bitterness. And it goes everywhere. And she said, but Pastor Tim... I cannot get over the fact that God won't leave me alone. He keeps pursuing me. I can feel it. I said, that's because God loves you. God will pursue you, brother and sister, whether you're a believer or not. If you're not even a brother in Christ or a sister in Christ, he will pursue you, listen, until you take down the no vacancy sign from the window of your heart. He will never relent and he will never stop pursuing. It's why one hymn writer called him the hound from heaven. And when you let Jesus into that center place, when you displace what's in your heart, when you begin to clean the attic of your heart, so to speak, and you begin moving him to the center of your heart, he will go beyond guest status to permanent master. And he will begin to give you the desires of your heart, which are his desires poured into your heart. 
And you will experience satisfaction. And you will experience no condemnation, peace. And you will experience joy in the midst of horrific events. And you will experience security in the midst of a tumultuous world with a fiscal cliff looming. You will experience God to the fullest when you displace what's in the attic of your heart and let him in the middle. And he will pursue you until you do. Are you going to miss Christ this Christmas? Most of the world does. Can I encourage you to take that sign down, unplug it, and throw it away. There won't be any more no vacancy to Jesus. Let him into the very center of your heart and watch what happens in your life. You're never going to regret it. Let me pray. Lord, thank you for this message, Lord, that has just impacted me this week. Father, to start to get me back again to focusing on your son. And Lord, I would confess along with my brothers and sisters, Lord, I struggle. The world is good at distracting me. And the world wants to pour into my heart things that expire quickly. The Lord, give me, give my brothers and sisters the strength, the discipline to take down that sign, to make room for you that you would dwell in our hearts through faith. And Lord, we will make this celebration about you and nothing of this world. It will not have prominence in our hearts. So, Lord, from this day through the rest of the season and, Lord willing, into the year, we pray that you will help us to focus on you, that you will help us to make room in our hearts for you and let you be in the center, no longer the guest, but the master. We love you. We thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand with me this morning? And uh, I'm going to actually... Tom Albany, come down here for a second. I'm going to actually have a special prayer for Tom as we close. Tom, as you know, is going through...